You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. Crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rowe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 11. This week's episode was a roundtable discussion where I invited five listeners to get on a Zoom call with me and just have an open discussion about the case. And I, and I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it in the moment. It was a great opportunity to bounce some ideas off each other and also for me to kind of get a feel for how other people on our team, you listeners, are thinking about, uh, about the case and what certain evidence means to each of you. Uh, obviously, only five of you, but it was it was it was a really good process for me. I enjoyed it. Uh, from the feedback, seems like most everybody else did too. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and you guys all sent in a bunch of questions and comments about the roundtable. So we, I mean myself and Zach Weaver, who's sitting right here with me. Hey, hey, and Mike Bussing, who's also sitting right here with me. Hey, so the collective we are going to get into your questions right after this. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get into listener questions, Zach, what did you think about the the roundtable? I really enjoyed it. It was actually pretty pleasant to hear everybody else's opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, I spend a little time on the fan page, but I don't spend a ton of time on the fan page, so I don't get to see everybody's opinions. So it was really nice to hear some opinions, especially some differing opinions that I didn't really expect to hear. Yeah, honestly, that was the best part for me. I asked for for volunteers, and that was, and by the way, nobody didn't get to do it. Those were the five people that volunteered. But I said I really would like to have have someone that leans innocent and someone that leans guilty and a fence sitter or two, and it ended up being someone who leans heavily towards guilty and and kind of four fence sitters really um, that even through their conversation I think lean guilty. So it was it was really enlightening for me because I I'm, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the fan page either, but I I see the the post by some folks who who seem to really, and, and we've talked about it on the podcast here and we've talked about it just privately, that sometimes through this case, I'm a little, I, I find myself confused when I'm looking at evidence and I am coming to a conclusion, which I've made no, um, I haven't tried to hide at all. Now that you know, my opinion based on the evidence that we have is I, I really think Jennifer's innocent and has nothing to do with it. And so sometimes I find myself a little confused, like how can people be looking at the same evidence 
and have such a completely different view on it. So I, I enjoyed letting other listeners be able to articulate why it is they feel the way they feel. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because we can, you know, we, we all listen to the same episodes. Right. I don't get the episodes any sooner than any of the other listeners. Half the time, I don't know what's happening until Sunday. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we don't talk a lot about the case prior to this because I'm trying to listen the same way everybody else is. So it's interesting to hear the way that people interpret it differently than the way I interpret the episode. Mm-hmm. I might have asked you a few weeks ago, but do you have a position where you're leaning on things now? I still feel like somebody within that apartment knows something. I'm not saying that anybody within Eva's apartment knows something. Right. I'm not necessarily saying that any one of them was involved or any of them wasn't involved. But obviously, I mean, to me, that apartment is key. The, the, the key players come from that apartment, whether it's Jennifer, whether it's Eva, whether it's Katie or Youngster. Right. Or another person that we don't know yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Was your opinion swayed at all based on the arguments that were – arguments, wrong word uh, – the – Based on the discussion, there was uh, at least one of the one of the listeners that was joining us definitely feels that Jennifer, not that she actually killed Catalina, but was definitely involved. And and I think she got the most space to speak. I think it was Cindy that had that opinion to kind of make her case there. Did any of that sway you at all? Did you feel like there were any points made that really changed your opinion? You know, honestly, I don't really think that anything in this particular episode swayed my opinion. Uh, I think there were some things that were stated that that I think if looked at openly can kind of go either way. You know, some of the things that they were saying would lead to Jennifer. Right. But I feel like you could say the exact same things about Eva. Sure. So it's hard. It's hard to kind of pick it apart. You know, there was at one point that they kind of discussed a possibility of a false confession, but still being involved. And I, I just don't, I can't say that it couldn't happen, but it just seems very unlikely. You know, I think that at one point they compared it to Jesse Miss Kelly's false confession, but we know that he had nothing to do with this. Right. Or at least those of us that believe he's or yes, yeah, yeah, correct. So I don't know. That, that's hard for me to believe. So I, it was really interesting to hear everybody's theories. I don't think it actually swayed my opinion yet. Yeah, and and, and it really wasn't intended to. You know, because there's people. I invite there's a there's another discussion group out there on on Facebook. I'm not a part of it, but um, it's mostly mostly occupied by people that had been booted out of the fan page at one point. Um, but they every season, every case, believe everyone that I say is innocent is guilty. And, and and I asked one of the listeners that's in both groups, I said, go ask them. I would love to have one of them on and, and they wouldn't they wouldn't come on. Because I wanted to hear to hear the guilty the guilty argument. That's why if you notice in the episode, I I did my best not to interject. There's plenty of times where I wanted to I don't say argue, but I wanted to I wanted to counterpoint what was being said. But I thought, no, I I want the listeners to hear what is being said from someone who believes that she's guilty or that is on the fence and thinks she might be guilty. So I let that play out. But I have, for me, I've got a couple of, uh, of notes that I was, I didn't have the time or opportunity to get them in during, during the discussion uh, that, that we can share. Now, most of them will come out throughout the, the questions here. But one thing, and I, to be honest, with you, I don't remember if it was from the episode or from a Facebook discussion, but one thing, I guess what, what I noticed is for me, it seemed as though, for anyone to come to the conclusion that Jennifer is guilty, there are an awful lot of hoops that have to be jumped through. And and I'll, I'll give you an example about that because I did what not think about it was on the fan page. But I had a long discussion on the fan page where after we come up with the time, right? Now we know 
that EMS was on the scene at 9.15. And, and further discussion, and um, um, Lynn, who was commenting about that on the follow-up, uh, was part of the discussion. And I think we all agree that EMS was on the scene by 9.15. Where Lynn and I differ on our opinions is when the pronouncement of death is. She thinks that if they got on scene, assessed her, called medical control, and medical control said, okay, you can call it, that she thinks they, they may have backdated that time to the time they arrived. So what's the idea on that? So let's say we go with your idea. It puts the, the EMS arriving closer to 9 o'clock, 9.05. And then if you go to her idea, it, they're arriving at 9.15 and really happening about 9.30. Is that kind of the... No, the well, so the, it really is a difference of five minutes. Okay. I think that when they got on the scene, they started assessing her. They called medical control. Medical control said that you can call it. And so they pronounced her dead at that moment, which would be 915, mm-hmm. which I think there would have been a five minutes would have passed from the time they arrived until they did that. So 910-ish. So, uh, so I think that, that they arrived on the scene by 910, which would mean, you know, and we backed that up as far as running to the office and calling 911, that would mean that Eva would have left the scene to go to the, to go to the office around 9.05. Because what, what we're looking here is our window of opportunity, right, for Jennifer. Whereas Lynn, Lynn thinks, and I don't think she said that she thinks this is what happened, but this is a possibility that they arrived at 9.15, did the same steps that I was discussing, called medical control, and medical control said, okay, you can call it, and that they would then say, okay, well, we knew she was dead at 9.15, so that's when we call it. Lynn has far more medical training than uh-huh. me, so I so I'm not I'm not questioning her at all. In this instance, I feel very strongly that that my scenario is right, only because I worked in that position. I worked in the field, and I know how we call in the field. I know how the protocols work, as opposed to Lynn, who worked in the hospital, which was different. So, so listening to Lynn, then, if you give it that extra five minutes, does that does that change anything in your opinion of the timeline? Could the murder have happened with those extra five minutes? As far as Jennifer helping. Well, we'll okay, we'll, we'll continue that path here in a second before we get into these questions. We promise we'll get into your questions, but I do want to, I do want to go down this path. Because the answer, to, to, in my opinion, is it depends on who you're looking at. Who, like who, who you think did it, 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 because that five minutes, I don't think, I still don't think leaves enough time for Jennifer to have been involved. But for other folks, maybe. But as far as the time of death, one thing that I think from social media a lot of people are confused or unclear about and that I want to clear up is the pronouncement of death on the EMS report is not the time of death. And that's why I believe that my assessment is more accurate as far as how that went down than Lynn. Having, again, worked in that position and knowing you know a different state, but I know what, how, how what the procedures are, what medical control does, all that stuff, how that works. On the, EMS's job is never, has never been to determine when someone died. That time is strictly a document. You you're required to document everything. And the fact that those, those reports had to be do, done in a certain way because we had to upload them into a national database, which means to me that those, it's, it was the same thing for fire. There was a fire, a national database for our fire reports that they have to be sent into. And so that's what, it's literally just so you can track what you did on the scene. So when you write down a pronouncement of death at 9.15, it's not saying, I think she died at 9.15. You're literally just documenting when 
you de- when the moment you determined her to be dead and and that determination ha- has to be authorized by medical control so it has to be after the call they tell you that the patient that yes you can call it stop life saving measures and then you say okay she's dead you write it down that's the time so to to think that they would show up at 9:15 assess her for 5 minutes and then make the call and then the medical control says okay well you can call it now and they say okay well i know she was dead 10 minutes ago so that's what i'm going to put as my time purchase new wiper blades from o'reilly auto parts today and we'll install them for free see better and drive safer with o'reilly auto parts oh 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 o'reilly auto parts let me give you another scenario that, that, that I think better depicts what I'm talking about here. I was called to a scene. This has happened many times, but one particular. I was called to a scene of a DOA. Uh, apartment complex similar to this. No one's heard from the guy in two days uh, or for several. Actually, it was, it was several days. Uh, and then the, the neighbors started to smell something. They call the manager. Manager calls 911, says, I think this person is dead in there. And police went, opened the door, found him dead. We respond to the scene, very obviously dead. I'm not going to get more detail than that, but very, very obviously had been dead for days in the apartment. It's a back where we had to wear air packs to go in. And in our report, once we get we got there, we called medical control and said, "This, this, and this is happening with this body. He is long since dead." And they said, "Okay, you can call it." And we wrote down. The, for our pronouncement of death was that moment. So if he actually died four days earlier, it doesn't matter if I wrote 915 or 910 or 920 on my report. Well, that would be for the medical examiner, right? Right. The medical examiner's job is to try to determine when they died. The pronouncement of death on an EMS report is strictly documenting the time that they did certain things. And a pronouncement of death is one of those things that are required documentation if there's a death on the scene. If medical control. So I told you all that, I'll tell you this. I believe that she was actually pronounced dead after the call to medical control at 915, which means they were on the scene, I would say, no later than 910. The other end, and the reason that's important is because we're looking at as a window of opportunity. So, in, and this is if Jennifer is guilty, right? Mm-hmm. So then we go back to the page. So we have 845 as the page. She says it happened at 845, says that she showed the pager to a cop that showed the number and the, and the time on it. And as far as you know, looking at the timing of, well, let me skip that part. So, so, so we're working with 845, which means she gets the page at 845. She brushes her teeth and, and washes her face and gets dressed, walks over to Janet's. So, we, so the timeline we kind of worked with was page at 845, probably out the door at 850. Eva, uh, youngster, confirms seeing her get up, get ready, and walk out. Eva confirms her walking out saying, I got a page. I'll be back. Or I got a page. I'm going to go make a call. She leaves. So now it's 8.50. It was, I, I, I figured, three minutes to walk to Janet's. That's, that might be pushing. It's all the way at the front end of the complex. But I think you could probably make that walk in three minutes. Uh, so now you're at 8.53. Uh, we know that the two calls to Craig happened. We don't know for sure about the one to the phone company. Craig has confirmed the other two calls. Janet confirmed she was there making calls. 
but we we don't know if she actually called the phone company. But if we say she was there for only 10 minutes to make those two calls and have those two conversations, now you're at 9.03. And then she has to walk that three-minute walk back. That puts you her back there at 9.06. Well, and if we know EMS pronounced her dead at 9.15, they had to be there by 9.10. That means, the, and, and before that had to hap, could happen, Eva had to run to the office and call nine and tell them and then call 911 all that, which means, you know, the, the Eva likely ran to the office around 9.05. And I would have to say that if we're presuming Jennifer's timeline, the, the one you presented, even if EMS shows up at 915, it still doesn't still way too tight. It still doesn't seem accurate. Yeah. It yeah. still doesn't seem like you could do any of that in that time period. Right. And so that that's one of the biggest things for me, despite all the other evidence in the, you know, the, the confession and all that. When you do a statement analysis, she gets all the elements of the crime scene wrong, all, the, all these different things. Besides that, that's just like literally like not just would be difficult, but with that timeline, it's impossible. She could not have done it. I'll tell you, as a listener, I really wish we had a timestamp on those phone calls. That I mean, that would be that that would for sure give you a beginning to this, right? Well, so now the one thing that folks have theorized about. So uh, we can't really play at all with the end of our window of opportunity. One way or another, EMS is on the scene at nine fifteen. Whether they were there at nine ten or nine fifteen, I I still maintain they were there at nine ten, possibly nine fifteen. But either way. But the front end is the page at 845. And after like, reading all the reports and stuff, people have, have theorized, well, maybe she, because daylight savings time occurred two days before that, maybe she didn't set her pager back. And so her pager said 845, but it was actually 745. But here's the, but here's the problem. There, there's all kinds of problems with that. If her page happened at 745, Eva also says she got her page at 744, which means they're getting the page at the same time. So you have Eva saying she gets a page, looks at it, and lays back down, and a while later, Jennifer comes out. So that, that's problem one. Then you've got to deal with, well, if, if the page went off at, at 745 and she left to make a call at 745, now we have an hour and 15 minutes of time to kill, and, and we have no idea like where she was. So in all, every version of her statements, the, the, it's the same. It's page, clean up, walk to Janet's, make calls, come back, shit's happening. In the final confession, page, clean up, walk to Janet's, make calls, come back, runs into the guys and they go in and, and start the attack. But in every version, that's how that works. In none of these versions, is there another hour in there? Where's she at for an hour? Where, where would she be for an hour, and why, and why does every single witness statement, nothing contradicts this 20-minute timeline we're dealing with? Yeah. I, I think the only plausible explanation for that timeline was the time she would be at Janet Dorsey's. Like, she, she would have to be there for a while. Right. And Janet Dorsey does not say that she was there for a while. It doesn't say she sat here with me for an hour. You know, this, so none of, none, of that, none of that checks out. It's, you can kind of infer some timing from... Uh, Red Rock and Housen when they come, when w- you know w- when she goes as far as Eva's relating it to the page she got, and to when she heard the everything makes it seem like this is a tight amount of time. Also, she was asleep in a bedroom, so when the page goes off, we're assuming she got the t- eight forty five time from looking at her pager. Presumably, there's an alarm clock in that bedroom, so maybe when the page went off, she got the time from the alarm clock. 
So then we have to start jumping through in order to make that time wrong. You have to jump through so many hoops. You have to. So there wasn't an alarm clock in a bedroom or Eva also for two days didn't change the time on her alarm clock to her room. Jennifer for two days didn't change the time on her pager. It hasn't adjusted to the the the, the time of you know the, the new time after the after the time change. Also, Eva would have had to also not change the time on her pager. Otherwise, they're getting paged at the same time, right? So there's all the and then every single somehow we have to account for an hour of time for Jen being gone when no one saw her anywhere except for the places she says she was, both either in her confession or in her other statements. So, so the the point in the conversation I was having on the fan page, people were like, "Well, I just think that it couldn't have been eight forty five because that's not enough time." And my counter to that is, that's not enough time only if you're insisting on wedging Jennifer into the crime. So, meaning you're making a theory and trying to let make the evidence fit your theory. My theory is Jennifer did it, and since the evidence that says we have a we have a uh, page at 8:45, and EMS is on scene at 9:10, and we know these tra- these travels happen, these calls. That doesn't fit my theory. So instead of saying, "Well, maybe my theory's wrong," we're saying, "Well, how could it fit?" Well, it could fit if she didn't change her pager for daylight savings time, and then, but then, as I just described, that leads to a whole bunch of it's a, it's a chain reaction of 15 other assumptions you have to make in order for that to work. And my and my my other counter is. There's not enough time for the crime if the page came at 845 for Jennifer to be involved. If Eva is the one that did this, you know, maybe with somebody else, there's plenty of time. Jennifer's out the door at 850. She doesn't get back until 905. It's a 15-minute window of opportunity, which doesn't sound like a lot, but think about how long it would take to commit this crime. This was Zach and I discussed outside before we started recording, looking at the actual evidence now and and getting past the misconceptions we had from the initial look at the scene. I absolutely, and I said this on the show, I don't believe this was a robbery gone wrong. I do believe Eva or Catalina was targeted, and it looks to me as though it wasn't a robbery that ended in a murder. It was an attack on Catalina and the and the grabbing the wallet and the key, in the in the key ring, was just a convenience. She's dead on the way out. There's a wallet and keys on the counter. Grab them and let's go. I don't think that the that the money or the car was a motivating factor in this crime, uh, which we talked a little bit about what that meant for, for victimology. But so you're talking about people, and I still maintain what we said at the beginning, that this was a blitz attack. Somebody came in there and immediately went after Catalina, beat her, pinned her to the ground, and stabbed her, grabbed the keys and the wallet, and got out of there. And say five minutes for that to happen. To be honest with you, that's a long time. And if you don't believe me, I did this yesterday. Set a timer on your phone for five minutes and see how much you can do. Even try to act out this crime. See how long it takes. When I went through conservatively kind of the motions I thought it would take to do this to get in and out, I ended up at about 70 seconds that it could take. Put in for some hesitation. Maybe you know, there's no sign that Eva was or that Catalina was restrained. There's no, there's none of that. It looks like they they went in, beat the shit out of her, stabbed her, killed her, took her wallet, wallet and keys, and left. So yeah, a 15 minute window of opportunity. That is plenty of time. So let's just hypothetically speaking, say if Eva was involved, Jennifer leaves at 8:50. At nine o'clock, 
say Eva comes downstairs and meets up with somebody who was coming to, like in Jennifer's second statement, that Eva had was meeting with someone to rough Catalina up. They jump in, attack her, kill her, come back, jump back over the vents. They're out of there by 9.03 and then goes up, gets, you know, whether she tell, you know, we don't know when, if, if this is in this scenario, she tells uh, Katie and Youngster uh, to say whatever they said about the screaming, but comes back down the stairs and sa- freaks out and says, okay, well, I'm, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to the office. There is time for it to happen if it's Eva. There is not time for it to happen if it's Jennifer. And there is time for it to happen if it was none of them. I think the wallet in the apartment makes it so that it is likely that somebody from the apartment was involved, but not it's not a certainty. But there's still enough of an opportunity for, for during that window of time, someone else just to have shown up and done this. So there's not a timing issue unless you're trying to create a narrative where Jennifer's guilty. Then there's not enough time. So you say that you broke down the, the time frame kind of in your own actions. 70 seconds right. w- will give you 90 seconds right. in there. So you say that you know this, this could be done pretty quickly if you set a timer for five minutes. Now, we just said earlier that that five minutes difference in the phone call maybe do, or the, in the EMS report doesn't matter. But how can you reconcile that now if you say that five minutes is a long time? I mean, is there a way? Or am I just jumping through hoops again to push Jennifer into this? So let me see. Let me back up my timeline. That's a good point. So my timeline puts, if Jennifer's only at Janet's for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and she's only on the phone for, and uh, it only takes three minutes to walk in each direction, she gets back at, at 9.06. So say so you're saying if if EMS arrived at 9:15 instead mm-hmm. of 9:10 that means that Eva runs to get the police at 9:10 now. And so that puts Jennifer back at the scene at 4 minutes before Eva would go. So that's a good boy and the 10 minutes is an estimate. I guess it could be less than that. I think she said she thought it was closer to 30 minutes. But yeah, so that that could be she gets back, jumps in, she's in the middle of it could work out that way. We still have to deal with the fact that Eva says she thought she saw her walking up and that Katie and Youngster saw her, or Katie saw her walking from that direction. But yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a good point. And I do need to check myself on that because if I'm wrong about that and they didn't arrive until 9.15, then that leaves that same four, that would leave four minutes roughly for Jennifer to commit the crime if she was at Janet's for only 10 minutes. So that is possible. That, that, that's a good point. So, so that does bring her, I guess, back into the equation. If they got got there at 9.15, I still maintain that that's not the case. That's not how EMS documentation works. Um, that, that may be how it works in an ER, but not, not for EMS. And again, we're still playing with, because you could even add more time for her to have an opportunity. If it took her less than five minutes to get dressed and wash her face and stuff, and if she only talked on the phone for five minutes or seven minutes instead of 10 minutes, there's a lot of play there. So, so yeah, I, I would I would concede to that, that, yeah, there, that still does leave a narrow window for Jennifer to jump in and do it right when she gets back. All right, let's get into these questions, guys. Our first one's from Kathy. I thought the roundtable was great. Will there be more? Yeah, probably. I don't know. I don't know when. I mean, it's not something we're going to do on a, on, a, on a regular basis, but I liked it. I mean, it, it, a lot of that depends on you, the listeners, on what you, you know, what you, what you want, if you enjoyed it. It was a very good exercise for me. I think if there's not a roundtable episode more, I think I would still want to do, you know, occasional roundtable zooms because it it was a good exercise for me and I think for the listeners too that were involved. Erica says, "What's the significance of whether or not 
Jennifer hopped the fence to get into Catalina's apartment. Does whether she did or not point to either innocence or guilt, or are we just trying to nail down the details of the day? I think it's more about nailing down the details of the day because I don't think jumping the fence makes her guilt. There, I think there are maybe folks that think if she jumped the fence, she's guilty. Personally, I think that we know she jumped the fence because of the fingerprints. It's just a matter of did she do it for the reason she said in her first few statements, which was to either to check on Catalina or maybe just to try to get a look at what's going on inside, being nosy, or if she did it as part of the crime. But but I don't think knowing if she jumped the fence tells us one way or the other if she's innocent or guilty. Suzanne says the man Jen talked to that morning by phone, is he still alive? If so, had anyone reached out to him about the amount of time they were on the phone? Yeah, he is he is still alive and he has been interviewed by by investigators recently. That's why I haven't heard from him because I know that the Jennifer's attorney has been in contact with him. So I don't you know, if there's a witness that he's working with, I don't want to to get in the way of that. Jeremy says, I'm wondering if the people who believe Jen is guilty are upset by the fact that the actual knife wielders have never been caught. What do you think? I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I I would like to think that anyone in our group, uh, as we're all working through this together with all different opinions of things, all of us, our focus is always, before anything else, justice for the victims. And no matter what, even if Jennifer is guilty, there's Catalina has never had justice. The person who stabbed her with a knife and killed her was never brought to justice. And that should bother everyone. And I think it probably does. I think all the listeners, even the people on the round table that said they thought she was guilty, they still think that the other people should be caught and that she shouldn't be in jail to this day because of that. Yeah, I agree. And that's a whole like that. that's a big discussion. We, we start I think we got kind of got we started there and kind of got off the off the rails a little bit. But I think that that is a worthwhile discussion. Like, I don't, it kind of got off the rails when, when I don't remember who was, was saying, but they're like, well, yeah, but 15 year olds have committed worse crimes. Well, yeah. And if they've committed worse crimes, they should be punished. The, the fact that they're 15 doesn't let them off the hook. But when you have a 15 year old that is manipulated into being a lookout for a robbery by two adults, and then those two adults end up killing the person. I don't think that equals the 15-year-old spending the rest of her life in prison. That's just, you know, I don't disagree that if that was the case, there should be some time. But it, I think it should have been left in juvenile court and it should have been, you know, she she does a year or two, I don't know, five, does some time for being a part of it. But losing the rest of her life for that is just, it's very short-sighted thinking, in my opinion. You know, we talked about this on previous podcasts, but. You know, we have a local juvenile offender that just got released that we know committed the murder and spent about the same amount of time Jennifer has. And she was not the murderer. Yeah. I mean, and we know that he committed the murderer. Right. Now, I I understand this is a different state, a different, you know what I mean? But it's still crazy to see. Yeah. And yeah, in that case, and I will just very brief because we've talked on it before, but there's two different cases, the one from your town and the one from this town we're in right now. Mm -hmm. And the one from this town right now, this guy got off after 25 years for a premeditated killed is strangled his girlfriend and buried her body because she was pregnant and then lied about it for years before he finally got caught and the courts decided that 25 years was enough because he was only 17 when it happened so how you compare it's a hot topic right now but he was he was a white guy from uh, from I won't say affluent but uh he wasn't in the same financial circumstances as Jennifer Jeffley here you have a 
poor black girl with a, a, you know, as Jennifer's mom said in my interview, they were broke. She was a single mom, broke, a black family in that. Like, I think they just threw her away. I, I think I'll go this far. I think that if Jennifer was white, she'd be out of prison by now. I think if Jennifer was a white girl, and this is just my speculation, just based on everything I've seen in the years I've been working through cases from Texas in the 90s, that if she was a white girl, she would have stayed in juvenile court and wouldn't have spent more than a year in prison. Lauren says, I don't think it has to be an all for or nothing scenario. Isn't it just as plausible that Eva was involved with or without the help of someone else, but used these kids staying in her apartment as her own alibi? And giving them her room gives Eva the means to be able to leave unnoticed. I'll say this. This is something we talked about a bit on the episode. And Zach and Mike and I talked about this a little bit off the air. Looking through, if you have like a a checklist, right, of possible combinations. So we have four people, right? So you you got Jen, Eva, Katie, and Youngster. I agree with what most of the panelists also said. I don't think that Eva conspires with Katie and Youngster to do this. So I don't think the combination of who did this being Eva, Katie, and Youngster. And because of that, I also don't think the combination is Eva, Jennifer, Katie, and Youngster. So, so th- I, in my opinion, those, those two combinations are very unlikely. As I said on the show, I don't think that Katie and Youngster could do this without Eva. Because they have to leave the bedroom, go past Eva, downstairs, commit the crime, and then for some reason come back into the apartment, which is, which, is, which is baffling why they would ever do that instead of just leaving the scene. But also then they have to come back in the apartment, walk right past Eva again for her not to notice. And then in that scenario, that means Eva's innocent. That means that Katie has to then pretend to be sleeping on, in the living room next to her and Youngster has to go into the back bedroom. And then he has to come out and wake her up. And then also you have to then assume that when they were both taken in different rooms and interviewed, that they both gave the exact same series of events about how they woke up, where they were sleeping, and how they stepped over each other. So I don't think that Katie and Youngster could do this without Eva. And as I said, I agree that Eva wouldn't do this with Katie and Youngster. So you start having, you're starting to limit people. So then you got, could it be Katie, Youngster, and Jennifer? And same problem with KD and Youngster being involved at all without Eva. It's, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me as though that is impossible. It, it seems like it's, it's damn near impossible for KD and Youngster to be involved without Eva. So the combination seems like it can't be KD, Youngster, and Jennifer. It can't be KD, Youngster, and Eva, or probably isn't. Um, that's the weakest part of this. The, the weakest link in this chain is... That's assuming that she wouldn't conspire with two guys that she doesn't know, but I still feel pretty good about that. So Katie and Youngster can't be involved or aren't involved with Eva. Katie and Youngster can't be involved with Jennifer and not Eva. So that rules basically all but rules Katie and Katie and Youngster couldn't do it alone. So that all but rules Katie and Youngster out, in my opinion. So that leaves us with Eva or Jennifer. So then you have, could it be, could the combination be Eva and Jennifer together? I say no. I say there's no way that happens. And I thought more about this. And somebody on Twitter uh, mentioned this, uh, and, and, it, and it really got me thinking about it. And they're, they're right. All this talk about code of the streets and not snitching. Jennifer did snitch. She, she told police 
once that Eva did it because she went down to rough to, to rough Catalina up because of the complaints. And then she told them that Eva told her to lie. So she did snitch on Eva. So we can't say that this whole thing was for her because of the code of the street. She's not going to snitch. She absolutely did snitch on her. She tried to snitch on her twice. And Alan just wasn't buying it. So and if we go back to if Eva and Jennifer did it together, then Eva tells police, points them right in the direction of her accomplice, which I just do not see being a possibility. I don't think that's too huge of a risk. Wouldn't happen. Uh, and then Jennifer is then throwing the the she she's pointing the finger back at Eva, trying to snitch on her. But in no, in no scenario are Jennifer and Eva in it together. Then then once Jennifer gets locked into a point where she is going to confess and she confesses all these details of this of this crime she and, and so what we're in I guess we would assume that she knows she's in trouble now and she's confessing because otherwise then it's hard to argue that it couldn't be a false confession if she thought she was going home afterwards but she she gives this entire confession and doesn't and Eva's not involved in that confession at all so what I'm getting at is also, I don't think the combination can be Eva and Jennifer. So going through this logical scenario, so then that leaves us from those four, Eva acting with someone that's not the other three, or Jennifer acting with someone who's not the other three. So that, yeah, there has to be an outside party if it's not, if that's the scenario, it has to be an outside party from that apartment. You know, and, and obviously we don't believe it's just a completely random attack because that's the only other outside explanation. But that is a really weird, iffy thing. Well, it, it's weird. Like, I, I would say, like, it's possible. Like, maybe it wasn't random. Somebody else had beef with Catalina, although we have no indication anyone did besides, or excuse me, I keep saying Eva and Catalina mixed up, that someone else had beef with Catalina. But there's no evidence anyone did. The only evidence of anyone having beef with Catalina is that Eva would. Uh, because of the because of the complaints, but but someone I would say that it's still possible that just random strangers did this and none of them were involved. But you have a couple things. You have the wallet is a big one, and certainly there are other explanations. I don't think they're the most plausible, but possible explanations for how the wallet ends up there. But then you add to that the lies that we and and so so getting back to where I was, that circles me back to where I was at as we're kind of checking off different combinations of people that could be involved. If it's not all, can't be all four of them. It can't be Eva and youngster and KD together. It can't be Jennifer youngster and KD together, and it can't be youngster and KD on their own. And it can't be Jennifer and Eva together. I keep, I'm saying the word can't understand. This is not, I'm not saying that that is a fact that it can't. I'm just saying in my, by my logic, I believe that those are, uh, that, that those are not things that would happen or could have happened. I think that leaves us with it was either Jennifer with outside parties or Eva with outside parties. And then we look into the timing issue we just laid out, the fact that Jennifer gets, whether she's innocent or guilty, was manipulated and coerced into a confession. There's no getting around the fact that that that, that information in that confession came from the detective. Even if she's guilty, it's it still is is that way. And there's a whole other discussion there about that. But so you have all that evidence uh, of a false confession. You have the timing issues. And then so we look at the other possibility, Eva with strangers. 
Eva in her lies, Jennifer never alibis herself in her lies other than saying that she saw Eva screaming at somebody. And I guess, I guess that is kind of alibying. But then you also have Eva, and this to me is, it was huge when I first discovered it, and it, and it, it still weighs heavy on me, is that Eva says that Katie is sleeping next to her and that Youngster is the one that woke her up and that they all went outside at the same time when Katie and Youngster say they were sleeping in the back room and neither of them came out, came out until after they heard Eva opening the... That is the biggest thing to me, uh, to be honest with you. The fact that all this time when I first started this case, I assumed that because I had only read Eva's statements that they came out and they were all in the living room together and went out together. When I read in the statements of KD and Youngster, which we're going to dig it, this week's episode is going to is going to break down their statements uh, more so than we just did the little pieces of them in the previous episode. That both of them were, you know, that KD gets woken up when he hears the door open, and then Youngster comes out and Eva's the door's already open and Eva's outside. That I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that that Eva's that Eva did it, but I don't know how anybody could rule her out. You know, but by the by this whole process of elimination, we end up with it had to be either Eva or Jennifer, not both. And I and I don't think we can completely rule Jennifer out either. But there's certainly but then you, you what what's the victimology? Who's the only person with a beef against Catalina? It's Eva. Lisa says, how do we know for a fact that Eva did not know the boys before that night? And what about Red Rock and the other man? What are their alibis? I, I don't know that we can know for a fact that Eva didn't know the other boys. She said she didn't know him. Jennifer said she didn't know him. And they said that they didn't know her. So th- that's all we have to go on uh, as far as that. As far as Red Rock and Housen, their alibis, I, they're really not alibied by anything other than what June Sage saw, which I believe she saw them. Her description of, that, of what she saw fits exactly with Jennifer's description of Housen and Red Rock approaching her. And fits exactly with uh, Red Rock and Hausen's description of what all interviewed separately of how that interaction went. So I would say their only alibi is that uh, that uh, June Sage saw them approaching from the other direction from Eva's apartment, saw a conversation and saw them walk away. Well, we think about their alibis, but but also why would they do it? I think that's a big one for me is like maybe we don't necessarily know their alibis, but they don't have a reason to do that. Right. Yeah. So the only info we have that says that Eva and Katie and Youngster didn't know each other is their statements to police? Yeah. All of their statements. All of their statements say that they met that night. But if they were involved in it together, that's exactly what they'd tell the police. Maybe. Jill says, I'd like to know more about how Youngster knew Janet. She gave him keys to her apartment to make a phone call. It seems like Craig and Janet were benevolent forces looking after Jen during her situation with her mom. It's odd to me that Janet would know a youngster and so well that she trusted him, but Eva supposedly didn't know him. I'm trying to understand the apartment community dynamics. It seems unlikely that youngster would commit a violent robbery in a community where he's well known. Yeah, I, I don't know about that last part. Yeah, I, I obviously have I stated some opinions about Katie and youngster and their involvement, but as far as Janet knows them, knowing them. These guys were youngster, not KD, but youngster was known pretty well throughout the complex. It was my t- from reading statements, Janet knew him, and Janet let him use the phone there. Uh, if you remember when we talked about the twins, Cena and and her mom, that they knew him, and youngster went over and talked to Cena. 
So it sounds like he is. Yeah, he's from he doesn't live in that complex, but he's there a lot enough that he knows people very well. It's probably how Jennifer got to know him from meeting him there at the complex. All right. Our last question comes from Lynn. Any chance of interviewing Cena? Seems she could help with background information on everyone mentioned in this case. And also, have you been able to discover if Juan was given the car keys by police? Uh, Cena's on. I've got a list of people that I'm I'm working on reaching out to. Pro- probably this week, I'm going to start pulling the trigger on on some of those because I, I I need to make sure I have all the information that that I need to be able to to ask them the right questions. Uh, and I think I'm I think I'm about there. And yeah, she's one of the people I'm hoping to try to contact. No, I haven't been able to get a hold of Juan. I don't have a phone number for Juan, and the phone numbers that I've been able to find for him are not accurate. So the only way I can talk to Juan is to go back to Houston, which I'll be doing again before too long, hopefully. But yeah, I haven't I haven't been able to contact him about the keys. Okay, that's it for questions. All right. Well, thanks everybody for writing in, and thank you again to our five panelists for for joining me for this week's episode. Uh, I think that it was a it was a good chat. I think it was very productive. Uh, and this week we're going to start getting into some of the alternate suspects. Uh, I, we're definitely going to. I haven't finished working through how I'm going to put it together yet, but uh, we're definitely going to hear more about Katie and Youngster, uh, the a, a full breakdown of their statements. And also some information about what they've been up to since this crime occurred. Uh, and as always, if you're looking for a, a listen between now and Sunday, make sure you check out True Crime Binge. This week we had from the Accused podcast and also the Crimes of the Centuries podcast I had on Amber Hunt. So make sure you check that out on True Crime Binge. And with all that being said, thank you guys for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. 
To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. going to be uh it's you're never going to like in in 30 years from now talking to your your five-year-old grandchildren be like yeah sure i'm glad i didn't go try that hunt you know but imagine if a bear imagine if i'm the one guy imagine if a bear got you guys in the same tent it'd be like a bacon cheeseburger it got like both you know like ooh. It was yeah. like there was like a burger on the bottom, but a little bit of bacon on top. So he's the bacon. I'm the yeah, burger. Look, I mean, look at the size difference. I'm just saying. But ba- I was gonna say it was like a double, like two patties. But I mean, bacons are fattier than burgers. But I wasn't. So say I'm taking two, that as a compliment. I wasn't gonna say it was two patties, but Mike's like a little patty. Right. <laughs> but you said bacon, and bacon's like eighty percent fat. I mean, look at which him. makes it, <laughs> which makes it seem like you're saying that I'm the thinner of. What the if two? he's the real lean piece? <laughs> right, like thin sliced bacon. That little piece that always gets burnt. <laughs> 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 In Zach's defense, I mean, a piece of bacon is it's thinner and smaller than a patty. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was going with that's that. That's exactly makes Not perfect fat sense. content. <laughs> right, I went to fat content. I went right there. Okay. Speaking of fat content, all right. So, so there's a there is a burger and a piece of fish on top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we? You know, let's just cut to the chase. Lettuce. Yeah. Lettuce. There's a burger and a smaller burger. On top. <laughs> yeah. This isn't fun anymore. Our, our body. <laughs> <laughs>